Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi. It's Roberta Fallon, and you're listening to Art Blog Radio. Today, I have two amazing artists with me, Yvonne Lung and Dave Q, who are recipients of a Velocity Fund uh, grant, and their project is called Dish Dash the Meal Kit. So congratulations, both of you. Thank you. This was in the first, the 2018 round yes. of the Velocity Fund. And we want to hear all about Meal Kits, the project, because it sounds like it's about food, which we all want to hear about. Um, and we want to hear about your collaboration. When did that start? How did that start? And first, I'll give just a tiny history of the both of you. Uh, Dave, you're an artist and a Tyler School of Art grad, and you've been a project manager with Mural Arts and Asian Arts Initiative, um, and independently, I think, also. Yes. And you're also a writer, and disclosure here, you write the Ask Art Blog column for Art Blog, and you are uh, the author of a book, you and your uh, wife, Alyssa, wrote Campfire Stories book, which was a community project. Yeah. Okay, and Yvonne, you have degrees from Texas. And uh, Texas and Vegas. And, and Vegas. Uh, Nevada, yeah. You're a Western girl. <laughs> and, <laughs> Everywhere girl. <laughs> yeah, and we want to get into that later. And you teach, uh, you're an educator at Tyler, and you've taught elsewhere. And you're uh, also a member of the Chinatown Dragon Boat team mm -hmm. on the rivers, uh -huh. the rowing team. And both of you were co-founders of the Artist Collective Practice Gallery in the 319 yes. North 11th Street building. So welcome and thank, thank, you. You. thank you. And let's start with you, Yvonne. Um, I read that the Meal Kit Project is part of, or maybe a precursor of, an ongoing project called DISH. Mm -hmm. So can you give us a bit of the history of DISH and how Meal Kit fits with that or grew out of it? Okay, um, so DISH started a few years ago. I actually received, I think it was in 2014, I can't remember, 2015. I received a Leeway Foundation grant to start this project and the inspiration was actually the passing of my grandmother. And um, during uh, the funeral, my cousin, when he gave his eulogy, he talked about this one dish that every time he went to visit grandma, he, she would make it for him because she knew it was his favorite, and it was called mian. And it's a noodle dish, and um, he talked about how, like, you know, not only would she make it for him, but also she'll make extra so she can pack it with him so when he takes home and he's in college at that time, he can make more for himself. And as he was, he's like, now I won't, we'll never be able to taste this anymore. And at that point I was like, why is it that no one learned this from grandma? So um, that was kind of inspiration of DISH. So DISH in itself is a project where I go and um, my first engagement was, was with actually my community, the Philadelphia Chantown Dragon Boat team, and talking to the youth and have them be involved, basically have the youth um, interview their elders to learn how to make a favorite dish that their elder makes. And because there was no, I have no funding for it, it was very DIY where I have them just to use their own smartphone to record um, the, this docu like a documentary style film of learning how to make it. 
but <clears throat> before kind of like the, one of those food shows on TV where you're in the kitchen. And yeah, yeah. And then before before we I have them do this, we, I would hold a workshop and we would talk about like what sort of questions should you ask? You know, what do you want to know? What do you want to learn? How do you think about tell think about how to tell this story? So it's not just like a random like video. So there's a little bit of coaching before that, before they dive into the making of it. And so, um, and then afterwards, um, depending on the group that I work with, like I work with um, high school kids from Central High actually one fall, and then they also did during the school year um, the video editing on their own as well. Um, that part I haven't been able to get onto the website yet, but that's kind of like what meal, uh, what dish is. Um, the meal kit is when the Velocity Fund um, call came up, I was thinking about applying it with DISH, and I was thinking about that, Dave got in touch with me, and he's like, hey, let's make it into a meal kit, and we're talking about how to make this a more meaningful project, and uh, we decided that the sort of like exchange of you can purchase a meal kit, pay as, um, well, I purchase a meal kit, and the money that comes from that will pay for a meal kit that will go with a population with food need. So it would be kind of like an exchange. Not only are you buying a meal kit, experiencing like a different culture, but at the same time helping with a population that kind of have that sort of need. So, so wait, if I was to buy a meal kit, mm -hmm. half of my money would go to feed other people? Ideally, the whole money right now, the way that we have the budget set up, is that the budget should take care of the grocery costs, and so that whatever people pay for will go towards the paying for meal, more meal kits. Um, we discovered halfway through that actually getting a food service license is extremely expensive and time-consuming, so we switched this over to pay as you wish kind of a donation to the meal kit. So this would be an interesting also kind of a litmus test to see how much people are willing to pay for three complete meals and then to have go towards someone that needs that, needs those meals. Wow. So, but you're going to provide money to the people in food need and not meal kits to them? We're going to provide meal kits. Meal kits? Yeah. Who's going to make all these meal meals that go into the meal kit? Me and Dave. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. All right. Every piece of food will be touched by Dave and Yvonne. <laughs> and we're working with um, 1149 Co-op Kitchen in South Philadelphia who run a restaurant out of their space so you don't have to worry about food poisoning. There's somebody overseeing us even though we're not ServeSafe certified. There's a, a, a kitchen a functioning kitchen serve, um, overseeing us to help with packaging um, the food. Yeah, I've never heard of them. Eleven Forty Nine Co-op Kitchen. Yeah, they're in South Philly, and I think uh, Barbacoa. They are. Oh, that, that's where it's where Barbacoa used to be. Um, Barbacoa still uses the space, but there are um, two. Um, two restaurateurs that are there really trying to build this out as a community co-op kitchen model um, thinking of it as a community space they'll serve lunch out of that out of that restaurant so you can go by and, and support them with a, a lunch purchase but really tries to um, think about how a kitchen and a function and commercial kitchen can be a resource to communities how other communities come and use this as community space um, they're a, a really cool group of people yeah um, the food is delicious so our blog could go in there and approach them and say we want to cook an art blog meal for a bunch of people. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. they would 
they and they hold events. I think I believe they hold events there too. Yeah, we're hold it, yeah. We're hoping yeah. when we launch um, the meal kit that we can have an event there where we serve the recipes that were selected, but also bring um, you know the the I guess the the, the people that have given us those recipes, both the um, the second generation immigrant and their parents where those recipes are sourced from, to kind of eat with alongside them and celebrate them and their stories. Sounds great. All right, pay attention everyone, 1149 Co-op Kitchen in South Philly. Yeah. So, um, how are you going to select the recipes? Is that coming off of a dish project? You're working with those? Yeah, we um, we select the first, so this is kind of just a test in a way for us to see how well this goes. So it's only like one package, but it will include three complete meals. So we picked three dishes, uh, three or from three people, and one of them is actually mine when I learned from my mother how to make jajamian. So it's a noodle dish that pretty much is one meal bite in itself. Um, but kind of like thinking about in terms of balance, um, but of like, you know, variety and then, but also culture also, um, just in terms of like ease of sourcing actually the products the for the uh, recipes because I think only one of the dish needs a very like Chinese specific dish, a Chinese specific vegetable, but everything else is fairly common that you can get. And I think um, that was like one of the things as immigrants, a lot of times they can't find the specific ingredient that they need mm -hmm. in this country mm -hmm. and they start mm -hmm. substituting. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, um, you know, that kind of also I feel like, yeah, I should pick dishes where actually it is ingredients that's available. It's not like too exotic, so to speak, so mm -hmm. that it's like people can, it's, it's easy for people to make as well if they want to redo it. Okay, so part of this is educating people on how to make these meals in their own kitchens. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you want to be able to do that. Yes. Yes. So Dave, I saw that you have a recipe yeah. and an experience on the dish website. So yeah. why don't you tell us about that, one of your dishes. So I wanted to participate in the project. Um, I was actually, Yvonne brought this project into a residency at Asian Arts Initiative, so we got to work together through that residency uh, while Yvonne was a social practice lab artist. Um, so I wanted to participate and support Yvonne, and so I identified a dish that um, my mom used to make me when I was a kid, but that when I actually think about it, it was a, a weird bastardized version of that dish. It's a dakpoki bokum, so it's a fried rice cake. And typically when you would make it, when you if you go out to a restaurant and order it, it would be made, uh, it's a rice cake, um, and then cut, that's kind of cut up and fried with gochujang, with a hot pepper, Korean hot pepper sauce, uh, and it's spicy. But my mom used to make it with ketchup, <laughs> just, because, I, just because I couldn't handle the spice, or she assumed I couldn't handle the spice, and we would make it with something sweet. So I was interested in just kind of revisiting that as, um, I guess part of the story of the food is that it's not just... It, it, it's kind of, it, it's brought over to this country through people. Mm -hmm. um, so exploring those relationships, exploring the people behind those, but also exploring the way things change based off of what's, what's available to you in a new country, and also what you, what you long for and what you miss. Um, and how about, those two things combine and how it becomes a bastardized version yeah. of those recipes. And I, you know, that becomes my, my base. Uh, I know the ketchup version of the dokbuki bokum, and I'll bring that into uh, my future and bastardize it in another way. Yeah. But 
But is the project is also about memory in a sense because it's not like the dish that my grandma made for my cousin was like the best version ever. But it's really more about how memory works into food. So even though um, it could be something like really simple, but it's like at that time. So like for I'm sure for you, mm -hmm. like the memory of that also has a big influence on, it, which is why you kind of like yeah. wanted to revisit it because you, I don't think you, did your mom make it for you since you've grown up. You're no, dead. never again. It's not. It's not like. Um, it's not special enough where it's like, you know, when we see each other, she's yeah. going to make that dish. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like uh, more of a, it's just, you know, more of like, oh, you need a snack. Yeah. <laughs> now that I'm a parent, it's like, you need a snack. And it's like <laughs> 3 p.m. on a Thursday and I haven't gone grocery shopping. Here's this two ingredient yeah. thing. So, no, I haven't had it again in a long time. And I wanted to revisit it. And actually, when I when we made it and I tasted it, I was like, this is not good. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't that delicious it wasn't as delicious as I, as I remember it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also yeah, there is an element of memory that makes your parents cooking or yeah, your someone that cooks for you, uh, th that memory really makes it the best in the world even if it isn't yeah, that great. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a huge part of it is the memory of it. Um, yeah, and also place um, on your website, mm -hmm. I believe under one of your recipes, or as an introduction to your recipes on dish, um, you talk about memory and place and how they go together and how they sort of form your identity. Mm. And you, even though you were born in America, spent childhood in Taiwan, mm -hmm. and you kind of feel a fish out of water because of the, I don't want to say rootlessness, mm -hmm. but there's something... You've been moving a lot. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah, sure. Um, I think rootless, rootlessness is a very good word because it is, and I think a lot of immigrants feel that way mm -hmm. as well, because, um, like for me, even though I was born here, and, and I always tell people, like, I'm born here, but, and I feel very Americanized, but I know when people look at me, that's not the first thought that comes into their mind. So even though I was born here, I belong here, et cetera, et cetera, at the end of the day, I don't feel like it's the place that I belong. Mm. Um, I think at the end of the day, for me, place, home, what is home to me is really, it's that kind of cliche, cheesy thing is like home is where the heart is. Mm -hmm. Like wherever you, you develop that, like me and my partner Dustin, we, we've kind of like in a way talked about this a lot because it's like we moved around a lot and then settled here even though we don't feel like we quite belong at the end of the day it's like this is where we made our little nest and so this is our home i mean that's the most that we can ask for is that creating that space for ourselves and like what kind of memories we create for that little nest of ours and i think so when I talk to friends that, you know, they, they grew up in a town or a city all their lives and that's how they identify themselves, I never had that. Mm -hmm. I, can, I can't really identify myself as an American because I know people see me differently. I can't entirely identify, my, identify myself as Chinese either because I've never been to China. My parents were born there. Um, when I was in Taiwan, because I am not Taiwanese, I'm considered what they call outer province, I never felt like I belonged there either. And they knew that I was born in the States. So there's like always, so within that, we kind of, I, I, both my sister and I kind of learn is like, home is where you kind of build it in a way. And like what kind of memories and what kind of stories that you build with that area, with that little space of yours.
Yeah. Dave, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I've certainly um, come to that experience. I've been starting to try to use the term American Asian, mm. um, but that, that also feels wrong. Yeah. It's, a, it's a weird feeling of being in between. Um, you're Asian American. We're, we're, we're Asian American, but we're neither of those things. When I'm in America, I'm very clearly uh, not fitting in. Um, when I'm in Asia, when I'm in Korea, you know, it's like, hey, there's that American kid. Uh, so yeah, it, it's it's a weird feeling of not feeling like you belong anywhere, um, but having access to do two cultural histories and having to kind of pick and choose how where your identity is going to come from. Yeah. So this sounds to me like it's particularly difficult for um, first generation. If your parents are first generation immigrants, I guess mm -hmm. that makes you second generation. So the sons and daughters of immigrants yeah. are the ones who feel the placelessness, whereas your parents perhaps identify with the home country, the country they were born in. They and they and they ha and their community is mostly like mm -hmm. Chinese. Your your parents' community is mostly Korean. Yeah, and then our, through, uh, we congregate through the church. So just like having access to a Korean church, that's where everybody meets up. That's where you. That's where you just kind of figure out who else is offering tax services in Korean language, and you start to build just a tiny micro community where you can, are comfortable moving around. And that's why you know neighborhoods like Chinatown, being ethnically defined, are continue to be so important. Yeah, mm -hmm. my my um, like contact with the Philadelphia Chinatown Dragon Boat team, same thing. They're they use all their contacts within Chinatown. If it's like either banker or like general contractor or doctor, they all go to Chinese um, businesses as opposed to reaching out. And it's not until like the next generation where if they've gone through like the education system and stuff like that, then they branch out. So it's so interesting. Let's talk about, you both mentioned a lot about community now, so let's mm -hmm. talk about community in your art practice, mm -hmm. because nobody goes to art school, maybe nowadays they do, thinking of, oh, I'm going to work in a community, Yeah, that's my art. Mm -hmm. They go to be a painter, or a sculptor, or a ceramic artist, or metalsmith, whatever. So what was your journey, and I don't know who wants to start this, from painting, sculpture, etc., to community and was there a light bulb clicking moment that said oh my god this is what I need to be doing because both of you have been doing this for quite a while now. Yeah. In um, my own journey. I think I have a degree in sculpture from Tyler um, but I only uh, only because sculpture is like the miscellaneous of art schools. <laughs> if you don't fit in anywhere else it's like, are you in the sculpture? You can department? do anything you can in do sculpture, anything. right? I feel like in sculpture, sculptors are good at looking at what's in front of them and talking about that. Whereas painters are considering the hundred years of history of painting. Same with ceramics. Same, any medium, you're thinking about the medium in context of what you're looking at. Sculptors are just, it's just so wide open. It's like, what's in front of us? Let's talk about that. Um, so it, I was doing performance art um, while I was in school. Um, so just thinking about my body, my body, my identity and relationship to other bodies. And I think uh, just for me growing up uh, as Asian American, I was just obsessed with power because I didn't, I felt like I didn't have any. Um, and just as I started to think about, as I got out of school and the opportunities to make work were less and less, I started to you know, find, 
find how those power relationships bounce off of each other as I did performances in public space, starting to think about who gets to control that space, am I allowed to be here, am I allowed to be anywhere? Um, so I think as those, those concerns all metastasize away from, somebody once pointed out that I'm probably too normal to be a performance artist, I'm not like, a, I don't have a loud personality, so I have naturally kind of walked away from like doing the like, here I am deal with my presence performance art, but more about like, how do we negotiate these spaces in our public space, how do I, how does my identity bounce off of your identity, bounce off of, you know, the neighborhood's identity, and, and I think that's been my journey into really thinking about community art. Um, and, and just, I guess, ethically, because I don't get to exist only by myself, Asian communities specifically are more about what is the balance, um, how, how, how do we maintain, um, you know, the order of things is the very whole. important. It's yeah. the whole, it's the, the whole. Big and it's like really energy. about like tamping down your own personal needs and desires to really contribute to the whole. Thinking about my identity there has, has made me more interested in just how, yeah, how, how do we negotiate that in terms of all the communities that have different interests and different opinions. Um, uh, so, so my work has just naturally kind of, of uh, developed uh, over, over in the community art space. Yeah. How about you? Um, so I actually have my MFA in ceramics, and I think when I was working on my thesis show, there was this one piece that when it went through the first fraying, it cracked, which meant that I probably can't let it go through a second firing to glaze for the glaze firing. So I was like spray painting this piece in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning in the studio, and I'm like, I can make this in a foam core, and it would say the exact same thing. Um, at that time, I was making a body of work that deals with me being a, an Asian American, um, some experiences that I had. So after grad school, I was thinking of ways to talk about that subject matter because I felt like subject matter is more important than the material itself. I'd rather have the material, what's the best fit in terms of material and subject matter rather than fitting my subject matter to a material. And ceramic is a, a material that has a really, really heavy history and baggage with it. And me being Chinese, you know, it's like porcelain, you know, the traditions of it, high fire, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I'm done with this because that's not what I want to talk about. So um, after grad school, um, one of the turning points was I, I got into Skowhegan. And when I was there, Skowhegan is not obvious, it's not a ceramic residency, it's overall art residency. And when I was looking at what facilities they had for ceramics, they had one electric kiln and one throwing wheel. First of all, I, I'm not a thrower, I'm not a potter. And second of all, I was looking at that, I'm like, I'm not gonna like make ceramic stuff at Skowhegan. So I kind of like open myself to whatever is going to happen during that nine weeks. And it was really great because I did get to see a lot of different ways of making. Um, so I started out, and so I started to try out performance. You know, I started to try out like participatory projects. And also another thing was Harold Fletcher was an artist there. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, <laughs> I can't remember the name of his project, but it was really big. Yeah, ten years ago maybe. Yeah, he's a he was a partner with was he a partner with John Rubin? Yeah, way back when. Anyways, <coughs> Harold Fletcher was there, and like that really also kind of opened my mind in terms of because things that I want to talk about through my work was a lot more important. So I wanted like 
what is the best way to communicate that? What is the best way to make people actually feel what it is that I'm saying? And object making was, to me, that was not the best medium. That was not the best vehicle. So I started to think about audience participatory, involving people being a part of the piece so that they can actually kind of like, oh, this is what you're talking about. And I don't like doing things in a very like, look how shitty you are, you're experiencing my art piece and my pain. It's really more about, I like to like involve humor or fun into it because then it's like a little bit more like, it's a little bit more welcoming and I think it's a little bit more like people can see things. I've never been a really pessimist. I've always been an optimist. So like, I want things to be like, there's a positive way to like, to talk about this. So when I came to Philly, um, <clears throat> I started working on my first piece I think it got me into the Chinatown community was my piece Tool, which um, was a piece at the uh, Fleischer sure, the Wind, the Wind Challenge, which yeah. is how I met Dave. Yeah. Because he right. was, Dave was an exhibition coordinator or yeah. something? Yeah. That's how I, yeah, so in 2009 that's how we met. And so that Tool was a piece where um, after my experience, during that time, that time I was a Mandarin interpreter for U.S. Immigration Court and Homeland Security. Um, so that was a piece of me going into the community, interviewing people, <coughs> kind of their journey from over there to here. Because from what I hear in court, it's really complex. It's not like how people think or whatever it is that they think it is. Um, so that kind of got me involved in the community here in Philadelphia and it's been kind of ongoing since then. Wow, such a journey. That's, that's really great. I'm, I was brought to a halt by optimism because I don't think of social practice art as intrinsically optimistic. Mm -hmm. I think of it as an artist seeing a need and which comes from a problem. Mm -hmm. and trying to do something about it. But I, I guess maybe at base that would be optimism. I think to try to do something. Dave has very, he's a very cheerful person. <laughs> I, I, I love working with him because it's like, it's always been like, let's just make this fun. And that's kind of how what we do with practice in uh -huh. a way. Yeah, yeah, it was like, this needs to be fun. I mean, like, we pay the rent, we're going to do whatever it is that we want to do with this space. But... Um, I think we both have that kind of personality in a sense, and I don't know if it is because we're Asian. Um, you know, the... I wouldn't the, attribute it just to that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, that there is true. There are lots of cheery people all throughout the world. And, and Asian parents are very critical. Anyways. <laughs> but I don't know, I, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I just don't feel like... I think when you were talking about performing, I think that made me kind of think about like when I do my performance piece, it's also like I'm not a very like here I am, pay attention to me sort of person. It's really more of like I'm just doing my thing, you know, and um, come if you want, you know, join me. I'm not going to make everyone like be a part of it. And I, I think maybe that sort of more like hard to describe. I'm not sure how to describe it, but it's like, yeah. I think social practice is inherently optimistic just because if you're, you know, the, if, if you're 
if you're working in a community and your only entry point is uh, nihilism, it's like I'm, I'm here <laughs> pointing out this problem and I'm going to show you what you're doing wrong. If that's the only thing you're working on, people will see you. You know, people can people people understand when you're working with love and compassion um, versus when you're there to critique. Um, so I think ultimately, what a social practice is, if you're going to, I guess, turn from there, there is the the debate over terminology. Are you social practice? Are you a community artist? Has social practice gentrified community arts? Um, if you're working in community arts and you're trying to uh, bring people and share the power that you have as an artist. With uh, with other people, you have to approach that with love. And the fact that you are doing a project at all, you're 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 looking at an existing system. You're seeing what's wrong with it, but you have to ultimately believe that things can be better. So there is deep optimism in in, in a path towards an improved system, uh, and improved relationships to that system, and improving the lives of everybody that's that the project is going to touch. So I think. I think without optimism, yes, there are many projects that can function that way, but I'm not interested in any of those. I think those yeah. are failures. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, if it's ju if it's just critique and then, you know I'm the smart person that's offering uh, some insight into this, I think that is uh, that's uh, deeply arrogant. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't function well, at least in the communities that I've worked with. Yeah, I, I kind of have issues with uh, social practice artists, what I call helicoptering into a community. Mm. The community that I work for, or work with, actually, um, the, the Chinatown community is, I've been in that community for the last 10 years, um, by through being a part of Philadelphia Chinatown Dragon Boat team. And for me, it's not like I'm coming in to tell you, this is what we should do. It's really more being in there and absorbing, because it's, they know actually what they're doing. They know what their issues are. They know like how they should like approach things. They know, I mean, like you see all the, activities like Viet Lead, AAU, um, they know what the issues are. Um, if anything, it's more humbling from the fact that they accept me as part of them because I'm not from here and I don't like necessarily, I'm not the same as them. But it is through that that where I get my inspiration and in seeing how these people are. Um, so I kind of deeply believe in the fact that like helicoptering in, identifying a problem and saying, hey, with my art I'm going to fix, that's, that's extremely arrogant thing to do. Um, that's just my opinion. Yeah, I, well, I think you both share that opinion and I think I share that too. Um, so we love optimism. We're going to keep going there. We're going to work on this project. And I want to say this project has archival leanings also. Your website dish, yeah. you are organizing an archive of people's memories yeah. uh, and you have recipes. Yeah. And videos yeah. and bravo for that. Yeah, so. I, that that website is a, at a quote unquote beta phase right now. I just haven't had time to put more on, get it more organized, get it more like together. Maybe slowly, hopefully, I'll get that. And again, I want to kind of continue this project with other groups as well. But life happens sometimes, so it's kind of like. Stop and go, stop and go. It is stop and go. I'm excited for the meal kit because I think it's an opportunity to interact with the project less on just a purely intellectual level, mm -hmm. thinking about what that experience is or what that might taste like. And actually, uh, I think we're thinking about colonizing this really bougie service, right? Meal kits are for hipsters, but what meal kits actually can do is teach you about a recipe and you're like kind of you're reading the story alongside mm -hmm. while making it learning about the history of where this recipe comes from and then you're actually cooking it 
you're learning how to make it, you're cooking it with the, with the knowledge that this recipe has traveled in the ocean to get to you, and then you can actually experience, you can eat it with that knowledge, which I think is, for us, what makes that relationship to the food uh, much more meaningful and much more delicious. And with the meal kit, what we saw was an opportunity to actually recreate that experience, um, take it away from the mind and put it in the gut, literally. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's why well, I'm excited put. about the, the meal kit to actually go out to people. Well, when will the meal kits go out to people? Do we have a, a launch date for this? Um, we're hoping that we can get our stuff together. Um, and I'm thinking maybe if, uh, end of August is the sign-up deadline, maybe? Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, I mean, we... Let's put it, yeah. put it out there. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little bit soonish. Um, but we, we are thinking September somewhere sometime in September to get it out. That's when we'll be packaging and shipping. Yeah, shipping or pickup. Um, so we do have a Facebook page that people can like um, follow or like, which is dish-the-meal-kit um, on Facebook, and people can look for it. We just set it up. Um, we're still trying to work out the logistics of a lot of the stuff, so in terms of like um, how you're gonna like order it, like how you're going to like um, get that together. My project manager Carol is working on that right now. Um, but we're also working on getting in touch with um, sites that can uh, accept donations for the meal kits. Um, I think one of the, yeah, we're in talks with a couple of places to kind of set that up. So it's not just like, here's a meal kit, here you go. Um, there are a couple of sites where it's like a school and they actually teach they have they focus on food in terms of like learn how to cook and like that way you can actually have this life skill so that could that is a part of it there's another is it a senior um, center in Germantown yeah. that we're thinking about maybe in, in getting in touch with the talk about it where they are a population that has a food need and then they can bring home and like cook these meal kicks kits as well um, so we're in the talks with several uh, I'm also thinking of getting in touch with um, Fishadelphia. They're a seafood food share um, thing and see if they can also help us distribute if we need uh, pickup points as well. Um, I need to get in touch with her to see um, if, if she's willing, like if we can make that work. Well, good luck. Thank and you thank very you much. Thank you so much yeah. for yeah. telling thank us you. all about the project. I can't wait to taste it, as yes. you said. <laughs> yes. Cool. We hope you will. I've been speaking with Yvonne Lung and Dave Q of Dish Dash the Meal Kit. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you.